0: I was once a sinner, but <coughs> I came pardon to receive from my Lord. This was freely given, and I found that He always kept His word. There's a new name written. it's mine oh yes it's mine and the white robed angels sing the story a sinner has come home for there's a new name written down in glory and it's mine oh yes it's mine with my sins forgiven i am bound for heaven never more to run. <laughs> I was humbly kneeling at the cross, fearing not but God's angry frown, when the heavens opened, and I saw that my name was written down. THERE'S A NEW NAME WRITTEN DOWN IN GLORY, AND IT'S MINE, OH YES, IT'S MINE, AND THE WHITE-ROBED ANGELS SING THE STORY, A SINNER With my sins forgiven, I am bound for heaven, never more to WRONG And the book is written, say. it's mine with my sins forgiven i am bound for heaven never more to wrong all right we're going to do something just a little bit different break up in monotony here or the routine we're going to have just a little maybe two or three or less popcorns so what do y'all want some Two is there's there's two reservations about this. I got to know it before I sing it, and Joanne's got to know it before she plays it, and both of us have got to know it to be sung. <laughs> but we'll be happy to sing some that we know. Five seventy one, everybody knows that. Five seventy one. Now we'll just do one verse. Trust and obey. I love that song. And we'll do the first verse. Y'all be a looking and a thinking. Trust and obey 571. Pick them all. Four ninety three. That sounds familiar. Four ninety three. Four ninety three. Glory to His name. Love that song too. <clears throat> I have a whole lot of favorite so- <laughs> songs in here, and uh, I'm sure you all you all do too. I can't particularly say it. There's just one that I love the best because I love so many. So not going there. I love all these uh, just about are my (laughs) favorites. Glory to his name. First verse, 493. Down at the cross where my Savior died, down for for cleansing. One more, Anne. 487. 487. Room at the cross. That's a beautiful melody. Great message in it. Room at the cross. Amen. Luke 14 12 tells, I'm going to read this. It is done as thou hast commanded, and yet. There is room. Luke fourteen twenty two. Room at the cross. First verse. <clears throat> the cross upon which Jesus died is a shelter in which we can hide, and its grace so free is sufficient for me. And deep is the fountain, as wide as the sea. There's room at the cross for you. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's room at the cross for you one more the last verse which one i i can't hear i'm like you i can't hear you got to speak up verse two and three all right oh okay gotcha amen sing the whole song in other words (laughs) SECOND VERSE THOUGH MILLIONS HAVE FOUND HIM A FRIEND AND HAVE TURNED FROM THE SINS THEY HAVE SINNED THE SAVIOR STILL WAITS cross for you, amen, there's still room for one, and every time I see that word one, I think of somebody, me, (laughs) and you, you can make it personal, that'll be all pastor,
1: all right, (laughs) <laughs> well I guess at some point each one of us is a one right so praise the Lord for that well uh, tonight uh, we're going to be continuing on in the Psalms and uh, Doug earlier he said you scared everyone away talking about the Psalms I'm, I said I don't know what I'd, I don't know what I could do to, to uh, not scare him away at this point I don't think it's so much about what I'm preaching on more so it is my preaching <laughs> is what I'm starting to think but I'm grateful that you guys are here tonight, and uh, how many of you guys so far on day one of Daylight Savings Time are all sorts of thrown off of your schedule? Anybody? A few of y'all, right? Well, by the time you get it figured out, we'll be moving our clocks forward an hour, and you'll lose an hour of sleep, and, and it'll be birds chirping in spring and all that stuff, okay? But uh, until then, uh, we'll just get along as best as we know how, all right? So take your Bible, to with me tonight to Psalm 22, Psalm 22. Psalm 22 tonight. I want to read the, the psalm. I'll read it in its entirety, uh, but tonight we're going to focus on the first five verses. Um, there's uh, so much meat here in this psalm. As I said this morning, sort of alluding to what we're going to begin to look at tonight is this is a, uh, a messianic psalm. This is dealing with not only David and his life, and certainly it has that uh, immediate contextual application where David is writing from his own pit of despair and, and, and anguish and misery and even feeling of, of abandonment. Uh, but we're going to see that ultimately it is Jesus Christ Himself who fulfills this uh, these uh, prophecies, and there's going to be several prophecies throughout uh, these 31 verses that we're going to especially see that Jesus fulfills while He dies on the cross. Uh, and so, read with me here, uh, verse number one: "My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Why art Thou so far from helping me, and from the words of my roaring? O My God, I cry in the daytime, but Thou hearest not, and." In in the night season, and am not silent, but thou art holy. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel, our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted and thou didst deliver them, they cried unto thee and were delivered, they trusted in thee and were not confounded, but I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn, they shoot out the lip, they shake their heads, saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him, let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. listen to such language. It's so descriptive, isn't it? He says, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord, O my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye, the seed of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All ye, the seed of Israel, for he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither hath he held, or excuse me. Neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard. My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord and seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. All they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done done this. Let us pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this night. We're grateful for the songs that we could sing tonight. Grateful that we can gather. We can worship you, Uh, Lord, that we can hear once more today from your word. I pray that now that our hearts and our minds be focused upon it, Lord, that uh, your word would show us Christ tonight and the fulfillment of such of these prophecies. We pray, Lord, that we would see all that Christ is and all that Christ has done for us, for our salvation. And Lord, that as we sang tonight and then closing, Lord, that there is still yet room at the cross. And Lord, not just for our salvation, but there's room at the cross for our daily need, for our daily uh, sustaining grace and power to live the Christian life. We pray that now that we would look to you, that you would help my heart, my mind, my tongue, that you would lead God and direct us. And Lord, that you'd be glorified tonight as we look to your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here, verses 1 through 5, we're going to focus in on tonight. Sort of the title would be A Man of Sorrows, Part 1. As we see verses 1 through 22, it's going to be dealing so much with the abandonment, the anguish that David is seemingly facing, but as well, and specifically, we'll be dealing with the prophetic, the Messianic prophecies that Jesus himself is going to fulfill these. Uh, And so we'll we'll get into a little bit of it uh, here at the very beginning on the onset of the whole passage. But then, of course, later on, when you get in some other verses, we'll deal with that at another time. And so there will be some overlap over the next a uh, little bit of studying this uh, this psalm, uh, but I'll, as well, not only overlap here, but as well overlap when we go and look at the gospel accounts of what Jesus is facing and the fulfillment in the New Testament of these prophecies. And so as we look here, verses one and two, we want to see, first of all, tonight, the abandonment. Uh, uh, David here comes to this place, and as he cries out in verses one and two, these are cries of absolute desperation. These are cries of uh, even uh, to some degree of feeling helpless and hopeless. We even find later on in the psalm, he says in verse number 11, for there is none that to help. And, and now here he cries out to the Lord, knowing that God is alone, his only help. Now, let's remember this before we begin to look at David and begin to look our noses down at David and go, well, how could he be so faithless? Let's remember, this is the same David that just... Four Psalms ago said, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. In Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my buckler, and the horn of my salvation, my high tower. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from mine enemies. We see that whole Psalm and we go, Wow, how could David go from so confident in the Lord in Psalm 18 to now, four Psalms later? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? O my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not and in the night season, and I'm not silent. Well, the issue is this. We often have a misunderstanding of the Psalms. The Psalms are not merely songs of joy, but the vast majority of Psalms are actually that of lamentation. They are that of uh, cries of of a broken and a contrite spirit, one who has been humbled by one's circumstances and the the issues of, of life and we find that the Psalms are a, a balm for us in every season of life. I, I tell people all the time, if you're struggling, go to the Psalms. If you're not struggling, go to the Psalms. Because we'll be reminded of this. If you're struggling, you can rest assured that as you read the Psalms that that struggle will not last forever and that the Lord is your only hope through such times of struggle and difficulty and adversity that you're facing in your life. But then as well, if you're Doing well and things are going smooth. Go to the Psalms so that you can be reminded to rejoice while things are going that way because they won't go that way forever. Uh, just as the, the the difficult seasons are simply a season and the dry seasons are, are simply a season, we have other seasons too where it seems that our cup runneth over as we'll see uh, in Psalm 23. Uh, but we have to understand that we want to live all of our Christian life where we're constantly just bubbling over and everything is great. We could never... Uh, We we could just never feel any better about our spiritual condition, and yet we spend perhaps most of our time somewhere in no man's land, right? We often bounce back and forth, we often struggle with uh, just not feeling as if the Lord is right there, and yet we find that the truth of the matter is that He is always right there. However... Our circumstances often cloud our perspective, they cloud our judgment, our emotions tend to overtake us, or even our lack of emotions overtake us, and whichever season we are in, I believe that we ought to go to the Psalms because it reminds us of this, that those seasons are simply seasons, God is still God, and that whether we are in a time of lamentation or in a time of rejoicing that even in lamentation our focus of our eyes must be upon the Lord, and that when things are in time of rejoicing and things are going great, that our eyes once must again go upon the Lord. And so that way when things are going well, we would not look to ourselves and congratulate ourselves or be puffed up with pride or, or begin to think that we have accomplished something or that we have arrived, but that we would be reminded of our desperate need to depend uh, in every moment of our life upon the Lord. And then as well in those times of difficulty that we would be reminded once more then that all the more reason in those times that we just don't feel it, all the more reason in those times where we're just dry and things are difficult, or we feel that God is far from us and we are far from Him, all the more to remind us how much we desperately need the Lord. The Psalms, in many cases, are absolutely those things of desperation, whether you are rejoicing in desperation or lamenting in desperation. But Nevertheless, we find such. Now, David writes this psalm. Uh, And in a dark point of his life, clearly, notice how he begins the psalm. My God, my God. Normally when we find anything like that, it's normally not good. As a matter of fact, we see it oftentimes in the psalms, and we see David say similar phrases, and he uses, oh my God, and not in an exclamation way or in some sort of way that is um, a a blasphemous or, or an affront to God's name or taking it in vain, but rather it is one that is crying, of desperation, of just an utter gut-wrenching emotion. This helps us as well because this reminds us too that even those that God used to write the scriptures inspired by the Holy Ghost of God, that they were human too and they faced human emotions and that they were of like passions as we were, and that the Lord himself is acquainted with our sorrows and our griefs and that he deeply cares for every season of our life. And now David writes this clearly in in a dark portion of his life. More than likely, this is written in the lowest places of fleeing for his life, either from Saul or perhaps even from his own son, Absalom. Nevertheless, what we find is that David was God's man. He was a man after God's own heart. David was the one that God had looked and said, this is going to be the king of Israel. This is going to be the one that I'm going to make covenant with. This is the one that's going to be ultimately uh, the messianic king of who the Messiah will come through his lineage and, and all these promises and prophecies will come through. And nevertheless, we find that David was not the choicest of his brothers, he, he was not the choices of, of even of Israel, but yet he was God's choice, and that's what ultimately mattered in David's life. God had chosen to use him, and David lived his life of faith. And yet, here's what happens when we think of David as we think of often, we think about his big failures because it makes us feel better about ourselves, right? We go, well, I haven't committed adultery, and I haven't you know, committed murder, so I must be doing okay, right, in comparison to David. Yet David, even after those things, in his repentance, was still called a man after God's own heart. But here in this moment of desperation and feeling utterly abandoned, he cries out. Notice how affliction in our life often causes us to feel as if we have been abandoned. Uh, A few weeks ago, we had dealt with that weekend of living in spite of, and we talked about affliction and trials and things of that nature. And everyone in here tonight has dealt with something or is dealing with something in your life that perhaps you even are at a low point where you feel that God has left you to yourself or that he is nowhere to be found, or that you cry unto him and that there is no answer, or that there is no help when you desperately need it. And what we're going to find is that David feels even the same, and yet what does he do? He persistently still goes to the Lord knowing that it's not only the right thing to do, but his very soul is dependent upon continuously going to the Lord. Now we sometimes think that we should do this with the Lord. He says, knock and it shall be open," and we go, Open up! I knocked once. It was quiet. And you could barely hear it. And I hardly even meant it. But I knocked! We have to remember that sometimes if we really want that door open or give the old... I like doing that one. That one's always fun. If you ever hear that one, it might be me, alright? If it's not, it's an imposter. Don't open up, alright? Well, we knock. You see, David knows that even though he feels as if the Lord has abandoned him, he knows that the fact of the matter is that God has never forsaken his own. And so, though he feels these things, he is able to go to God and tell him all about his emotions. God is big enough for all of your biggest and wildest emotions. He is you know, big enough for all of your biggest and wildest questions and difficulties and, and, and wrestling Uh, that that the Lord himself, through this time of wrestling with him and even wrestling with your faith and the struggles of of your emotions and feelings and the circumstances of life, he is able to use these things to show us that ultimately we have not been utterly abandoned. Nevertheless, the psalmist feels this way. David is a messianic king. It is through him that the king of kings will come and, and reign as prophet, priest, and king. Now David here gets to reign as king. He acts as prophet, but he was not able to be a priest due to his lineage. We find then as well that the priests of the day, some were prophetic, but never were they kings. We find that they were sometimes kings, but they were not often prophets nor priests. But what we find is that Jesus Christ is the only one who can fulfill all three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And so because of that, Jesus is greater and superior. This is what the whole book of Hebrews is about to remind, especially I believe in in end times, I believe the book of Hebrews myself is going to be, it's specifically used during the time of tribulation period to see the Jews come to Christ because they're going to see uh, we've looked and trusted all these other folks and here this book tells us and shows us that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment and is greater than all of these. But nevertheless, what we find is that Jesus' is fulfillment of what is to take place here. David writes this psalm as he deals with his own afflictions, but this as well is as a prophetic messianic psalm that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And so this is the beauty of it. As we begin here in verse number one, uh, raise your hand tonight if you recognize these words. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All right, where do you recognize that from? On the cross, that's right. One of the last cries of Jesus on the cross is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, here's what is so interesting to me. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the incarnate word. That that means that the word made flesh, according to John chapter 1. But then, as well, what does Jesus do? He quotes the inspired word there on the cross. He identifies who this is. He identifies with this psalm. And this shows us, as well, that not only does Jesus, is he able to recite this because he's God and he's the one that inspires it in the first place, and he's the one that's fulfilling it and the one that it's being written about ultimately. But we find that in His humanity, Jesus Christ, even up to the very last moments of His earthly life, depended upon the Word of God. How much more, dear believer, should we depend upon God's Word? If the Lord Jesus Christ took God's Word to, uh, of Scripture and, and, and memorization and thinking and application to His own life, how much more should we? And so this is a reminder of the importance of the word of God in our life. But there on the cross, Jesus Christ, the incarnate word, remembers the prophecy of the inspired word that is now being fulfilled in his abandonment upon the cross. MacDonald writes, The eternal son who had always been the object of his father's delight was now abandoned. The perfect man who unfailingly did the will of God experienced the terrible desolation of being cut off from God. Now, here's what is interesting. Jesus, for all eternity, had only known a perfect and right and wonderful and loving fellowship and relationship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. There was no break in such relationship. Everything was perfect and wonderful and and, and infinite in its beauty and glory. God is sufficient all on his own. He did not create man because he was lonely or needed some way just to simply express himself or to feel good about himself. No, he was content within, within the Godhead nevertheless what we find though is that Jesus now is the fulfillment of all this because in order for your sins and my sins to be paid for Jesus has to face this this is a uh, fulfillment of what we see in the old and New Testament alike called the curse motive it is the idea that those uh, uh, in the Old Testament they had on the day of atonement they had a scapegoat who the sins would be placed upon and the scapegoat would be sent out of the camp and and would be uh, sent out to the wilderness, if you will, and would die. But then there was as well another one, another uh, sacrifice that would take place. And so the priest would as well, uh, that, that animal would be used to sprinkle the blood in the, on the mercy seat upon the Holy of Holies. And we find that Jesus Christ himself is a fulfillment of both. And yet at the same time, he is, well, the great high priest that none compares to him. There is no priest that has ever come that compares to Jesus Christ, the great high priest that Jesus is not only prophet, priest, and king, but He is the very sacrifice for sins. And there on the cross, Jesus is the perfect, spotless, sinless, blameless Lamb of God who is as well the scapegoat who takes our sin away and out of the camp. He is as well the, the priest that now maketh intercession for us and reconciles us to God. And He represents God perfectly because He's God. He represents man perfectly because He was there in the flesh. A literal human body, the, what is called the hypostatic union, that Jesus is the God-man, truly God and truly man. Now, turn with me for a few verses here to see this fulfillment. Hebrews 5.7, for just a moment, Hebrews 5.7, seven. Uh, matter of fact, you guys go ahead and turn to Matthew 27. Y'all turn to Matthew 27, I'll turn to Hebrews, all right? Hebrews 5.7 tells us this. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard, and that he feared. Though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. In being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is describing the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. But now if you look over where I ask you to turn in Matthew 27, let's read together here verse number 33. Uh, through 51, it seems lengthy, but we need to see what is taking place here on the cross. Now, just backing up, if you look at verse 27 to 32, what you see is Jesus. At this point, he has already faced throughout the night uh, a, a false accusations, a mockery of a trial that was a, a farce to begin with, and a legal trial at that. He has been beaten and punched. He has been blindfolded and punched and, and mocked and made fun of. He has had a crown of thorns driven upon his brow at this point. He has been stripped naked. He has been beaten with a rod already. He has faced a great deal of pain. He is now at this point, in verses 27 to 32, he has been stripped. He has been put on a scarlet robe. He has as well uh, have been uh, whipped uh, with the cat of nine tails. He has been scourged, and all of these things have taken place. And now here in verse 33, And when they were coming to a place called Golgotha, this is to say a place of the skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. Now, we'll get into that as well later on in Psalm 22. There's some that has to do with that, as well as when he cries out, I thirst. We'll deal with that on another night. He then says in verse number 35, and they crucified him, parted his garments, casting lots. We'll deal with that on another night, but that's also there, remember, in Psalm 22 in our reading. He then says that it might be fulfilled, that which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture they cast lots. That's seen in Psalm 22, verse 18, right? And so there, even verse 35, notice he says, as the prophet spoke. Well, who's the prophet there? It would be David, isn't it? And so how interesting that is. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. Right, These died justly. Right, They, they deserved this. And they passed by and reviled him, wagging their heads. We'll deal with that in Psalm 22 as well. And saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it three days, save thyself If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. And if you will save him, for he said, I am the son of God. We'll deal with that in Psalm 22 as well. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness. Now here's going to be key. Crucifixion began that morning, nine o'clock in the morning. Here now at 12 o'clock, the sixth hour of the day, there's darkness all over the, upon the land until the ninth hour. That's three o'clock in the afternoon. That's high noon. Now, three o'clock in the afternoon is when the sacrifices for the Passover would be taking place. Now, how fitting it is that the Lamb of God, the true Passover sacrifice, perishes during this time. And what is interesting to note is that the following is that the the curtain of the temple, the veil, is going to be torn in two from top to bottom. And in so doing, they would no longer, that you and I see that we can now freely pass on and be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But the Jews on that day could not proceed with their... Uh, with their Passover festivities in the temple. uh, The priests could not go about their offices as they would normally do. So why? Because their sacrifices were null and void. It meant nothing. Uh, One, their hearts were not in it. But two, the true and perfect, complete and final, sufficient sacrifice had just happened. The Lord Jesus himself. And this, uh, look with me here on the the, the darkness over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachtini, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there, when they heard that the man called for Elias, and straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink, the rest said, let, uh, let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. And Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And, the, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks... Here's what we find. Here in this moment on the cross, this was the moment in time where Jesus is paying the price for our sin, where He is abandoned by the Father. He is left to die alone, forsaken, stricken. He is there dying and bleeding for our sins because of His great love for us and His Father. Ultimately in this, as we look back, perhaps just a page in your Bible in chapter 26, Verses 36 to 46, here's what we see. Matthew 26, 36 through 46 shows us the cup of dread that the Savior had. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane. A place of pressing is what it means. And saith and say, uh, unto the disciples, sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tear ye here and watch with me he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples and findeth them asleep and saith unto Peter, What, could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not in temptation. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it. Thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were very heavy, and he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now, take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. There we find that night of his betrayal there in the garden. He begins, if you will, to taste the bitter cup of which he would drink in all of its dredges the following day on the cross for our sins. We find that this cup of affliction and abandonment and wrath will be partook of only by Jesus Christ because you and I could never partake of it. You and I could never drink a drop of this cup, let alone all of it dry. Jesus here for three hours partakes of this and He drinks it not because He deserved it, not because He had done anything to deserve wrath or to deserve abandonment, but because you and I deserved wrath and you and I deserved abandonment and Jesus did it. For His great love. Showing us the love of the Father for us. That He would send His Son. And would give us His Spirit. Sealing us in the day of redemption. And signifying that we are in Christ. Who has reconciled us unto the Father. Our very salvation, sanctification, and glorification. From the very time of creation itself to the day of consummation. Every moment is an act of the Godhead the triune, thrice holy God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here, even this moment on the cross, even when all this is taking place, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are involved in such to bring about the salvation of sinners. Here, Jesus uh, partakes in, in Matthew 27 here. He drinks the cup of deliverance for the sinner. His death becomes our life. He drank of wrath so that we could drink of grace. He drank our guilt so that we could drink His grace and be found guiltless in the sight of Almighty God. Second Corinthians 5.21, a familiar passage, tells us this, For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. On Jesus' account that day, all of our sin, all of our unrighteousness, our death, our punishment, everything was placed upon His account, and He paid the price for us so that... On our account, we could obtain His righteousness and be called and be found righteous and declared righteous in the sight of Almighty God, not by works of which we had done, but by His work alone and by His mercy and His grace and His love for us. Here, what happens on the cross that day is that Jesus experiences a withdrawal of fellowship in the wrath of the Father. What a frightening and a terrible and a horrible thing, and yet we find what a beautiful way to open up this psalm. Because what David is doing here is David is certainly expressing his own feelings and emotions, but he is acting as a prophet, showing what Jesus is going to cry out upon that cross one day and that he will do so for the the payment and the price of our forgiveness. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Back in Psalm 22, and then he says, Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Sorensen writes, Though he suffered the pains of the cross physically, the real suffering was spiritual he had become sin who knew no sin. His holy heavenly Father had turned from Him. He hung there alone, rejected of man and forsaken by God. The word translated as roaring means exactly that. The thought likely is how that our Lord cried out in utter despair on the cross, even as, lion, as a lion roars. We see that there we sing songs that mention about His groanings. There those cries upon the cross. At least seven sayings there that are recorded in the Gospels on the cross, each one giving us an insight about who He is and what He is accomplishing for us, and as well, uh, the, the beauty of His substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. I encourage you to, to to look through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and to see these cries on the cross, and to see what He has done for us, and the way in which He speaks and, and cries out and roars. And it it reminds us of this passage as well, that here, the, the psalmist David is writing, and David knew God's deliverance, but he felt that God was far off from helping him. And the feeling of helplessness is a humbling thing for David. He says, oh, why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring, he goes, I, I'm roaring like a, like a lion would roar. I, I'm crying out, I'm calling out. And it is as if you are so far from helping me. Why is this such? He feels this sense of abandonment. But as David feels this in his own emotions and in his own life, he is prophesying of what Jesus is going to actually and literally face. Jesus faced real abandonment for our sins. David was never once abandoned, and neither are you or I, dear believer. Not once in your life, dear Christian, will you ever be abandoned by the Lord. Why? Because Jesus has already faced this for us so that you and I would never have to face it and that you and I would only know the fellowship and communion of our Lord God. Jesus is without help, however, on that cross. As He suffers alone and abandoned to achieve our salvation, He has completely yielded Himself to uh, the, the work of the Spirit in, in, the, in, in His ministry, but as well He has submitted Himself the night before and throughout His earthly life to the will of His Father. Even from an early age, we see there He is found in the temple and He says, didn't you know I'm about my Father's business? You know, then we find all throughout the, the Gospels, Him speaking about He is not come to do His own will, but the will of the One who has sent Him, that He and the Father are one, that He is in the Father and the Father in Him. We see even the, the, the night before there and His betrayal there in the garden that He cries out, Father, let this cup pass before Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Thy will be done. Jesus chooses the affliction and the abandonment so that you and I would only know grace and mercy and love and forgiveness. Here's what David had an issue with, though, for you and I, we run into this as well. We often let affliction in our life lead us to apathy or being antagonistic against God, thinking that he really doesn't care for us. Here's what the devil would love to do. On those days that you just feel off or out of kilter or that you just don't feel so close to the Lord or that you feel as if He's far from you or that your, your prayers are not being answered or, or that your prayers are not being heard, the devil, the devil will quickly tell you. It's no use in praying. You're too far gone. He does not hear you, nor does he care for you. He will tell you a multitude of lies, but what do we know about the devil? He is the father of lies. This is what he does. The most important thing that we can do in these times of feeling abandoned and far from the Lord is to keep crying out because He is truly right there. The issue is that we must cry out, I believe, not for the Lord to hear us, but rather for us to hear the Lord. For us to begin to know that His presence is still there, that His promises are still true and are sure, and that He will remain with His people. Verse number two, oh my God, I cry in the daytime. Thou hearest me not in the night season, and I'm not silent. David is in agony, feeling that his cries of desperation are not heard. Jesus on that cross cries in the day, yet it felt as if it were night, even there dying on the cross in the darkness upon the land. As he dies in the darkness of Calvary, bearing the weight of our guilt and the weight of our sin. Let me ask you tonight is there a worse feeling than feeling helpless? I think sometimes perhaps one of the worst feelings that we have is not being able to help someone that is dear to us, that is going through a difficulty or perhaps an emergency situation. You're just absolutely helpless. Is there something worse than feeling helpless or hopeless or perhaps unheard? Here, David feels all the above and then some, and this allows us to relate. But as well, this reminds us of all that Christ went through on our behalf, for our sins. And this should make us all the more grateful for our salvation. This should make us all the more prepared to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth for who He is and for what He has done for us. Now notice how the abandoned feeling turns into acknowledgement for David in verses 3-5, through and this must be the pattern for our life as well. But thou art holy. That's the right response. That is the only true response. That is the response of faith. That is the response of a believer. It is the response of those that are not going to rest their spiritual condition upon their feelings or emotions, but rather upon the facts of who God is. All other ground is sinking sand except the solid rock and foundation of knowing the Lord. Even in feeling abandoned, we must acknowledge who God is and that His promises are true. Notice this, but thou art holy. Sorensen writes, "...the ultimate attribute of God is acknowledged by His Son. He is holy." In Habakkuk 1.13, the prophet wrote, "...thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Because of God's infinite holiness, He could not look upon His suffering Son that awesome day." Notice also David's appellation of, of, of God as, "...thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel, the Lord is and ought to be the focus of God's people." Here we see, but "...thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel." He sees God for who He is. He acknowledges this. And this begins to turn his heart away from feeling so abandoned and knowing that though I feel this way, I can rest assured that not only does God hear, but He cares for me. Though my emotions and my feelings and my circumstances betray me and do not feel as if God is near to me, because God is holy and because I am His, He hears, He knows, and He cares. This is an encouragement for David as well as for us tonight. You see, the idea here, but thou art holy, this is a summation of God's character, his attributes, and as well as his actions. All that God is, is holy. All that God does is holy. Pure, perfect, providential. In every moment of of time and eternity, God is holy. He has not grown in holiness, he has not waned in holiness. Uh, we find that God's love is a holy love. It is not like our love. God's mercy and compassion and grace and forgiveness is a holy... Uh, all of those things. It's not like ours. He is so far separated from us and from what we are like. His ways are not our ways. And we find that uh, you can find and take the holiest of men. And you combine all the holiness of all of mankind. And you would not come to a drop in the bucket of God's holy character or nature, or attributes, or actions. And so all that God does is so separated because it is so pure and so perfect and all that He does and all that He is. David recognizes this. We sometimes think that God's holiness is just a demanding attribute or perhaps an attribute that leads us to despair because we do find in the Scriptures several times where the holiness of God becomes such an overwhelming thing for the people that... See him in his unbridled holiness, that they say, Woe is me! or they cry out in fear and trembling. They are so affrighted that they even wish for death or for him to not speak to them because of the great horror and terror that they are facing. For the believer, God's holiness is something that we rest on. God's holiness is not for our affliction, it is for our assurance. Because God is holy, not if God is holy, but because God is holy, I can trust Him. Because God is holy, I can rest assured that His promises are true. Because God is holy, I can trust that His presence is ever with me because it's what He promised to do. I can trust because God is holy that He will provide for me, that He hears me, that He cares, that He knows me, that He will deliver me even if He does not deliver me from my specific circumstance and I perish. Yet, I will be absent from the body and present with the Lord in that, my friend, is ultimate deliverance. And so we see that ultimately, God in His holiness, His holiness is something to be praised. It is something to be delighted in. God's love delivered what His holiness demanded there on the cross. God's love gives a sacrifice to satisfy His holy wrath and justice. And His Son partakes of such for us. Displaying, declaring the love and the holiness of God met together. God's holiness is punishing the Son so that He can pardon the sinner. God's holiness is wonderful because without God's holiness, not only would we not be able to know God, not only would we not have a God worth serving, but we would not have salvation whatsoever because it is God's holiness that saves, that cleanses, that purifies, and that assures the believer of our salvation, our sanctification, and one day our future glorification to be with Him forevermore. Spurgeon put it this way, We may not question the holiness of God, but we may argue from it and use it as a plea in our petitions. God's holiness leads us to prayer. God's holiness leads us to praise His name for who He is and what He's done. God's holiness and the very mere character and thought of His nature and His being and His attributes and His actions in our our life and and all of uh, eternity, It, it leads us to depend upon Him and to trust Him. And we not shy away from His holiness, but rather embrace it to praise Him for it. He says, O Thou that inhabitest the praise of Israel. God had always heard the cries of His people and delivered them even through their sin and disobedience. We find ultimately that God his very presence is seen in the praises of His people. Uh, later on, we see uh, in Psalm 106, uh, verses 1 through 10, it's, Praise ye the Lord. It's hallelujah. Oh, good thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all His praises? Blessed are they that keep judgment, and He that doeth righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that Thou bearest unto Thy people. O visit me with Thy salvation, that I may see the good of Thy chosen, that I may rejoice in the gladness of Thy nation, that I may glory with Thine inheritance. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers understood not Thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of Thy mercies, but provoked Him at sea, even at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, He saved them for His name's sake. Not for their sake, but for His name's sake, for His glory's sake, for His holiness's sake that He might make His mighty power to be known. He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up. So He led them through the depths as through the wilderness. And He saved them from the hand of Him that hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. Uh, Then in verse number 43 of Psalm 106 tells us this, Many times did He deliver them, but they provoked Him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. God was ever present with His people, and yet they often rejected Him. I believe the reason why we often reject God's presence and His provision and we do not believe His promises that we ought to is because we do not see Him for being as holy as He truly is. And it's because we do not see ourselves for being as unholy as we truly are. Notice David sees it and he declares it there in verse 6. We'll get into that uh, another night. He says, but I am a worm. Comparison, the holiness of God. And therefore, he rests upon the Lord. He says... Our fathers trusted in Thee. They trusted and Thou didst deliver them. And ultimately, the Lord Jesus is one that trusted far greater. Israel did not trust in Christ. Israel refused to trust the Lord over and over and over again, yet God delivered them. And ultimately, Jesus trusted His heavenly Father all the way through to the end. He says, Thou didst deliver them. They cried unto Thee and they were delivered. They trusted in Thee and were not Confounded. Though Jesus on that cross feels an abandonment, He acknowledges the Lord. He acknowledges His Father. Even His last cry being that He yielded up the ghost. Father, into Thine hands I commend My spirit. After crying, it is finished. Price paid in full. Jesus fulfills the Scripture. And though He remained abandoned on the cross, He would be delivered from death's sting in His resurrection. Why? Because ultimately death could not hold Him. Death could not keep Him down. Ultimately, He alone has the keys to death, to hell, to life. He is the resurrection and the life. And so we see that He was delivered just as the psalmist is. Just as God's people always have been. And though God's people will face tribulations and adversity and afflictions, yet for the believer, there is ultimate deliverance one day when we see the Lord face to face. Now Jesus' death is our death and His life is our life. He died and rose as victor to the praise of the Father for His name's sake. The easiest way for us tonight, like David, to defeat feelings of abandonment is to acknowledge that God is God and will ultimately deliver. So whatever season you are in tonight, you can rest assured it is just a season. Tonight, if you are struggling with feeling abandoned or perhaps far from the Lord, you can rest assured it is just a moment. It is a momentary light affliction. That is not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us, that though we are facing such difficulty, though we might face such adversity, though we face such sorrow, yet ultimately no one faced such sorrows as Jesus Christ, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Man of sorrows, what a name. We see then tonight, I'll read this and we'll close. Hebrews twelve, one through three says, Wherefore, seeing we also are passed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which has so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of God, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Tonight, if you, like David, are wearied and feel as if you are ready to faint in your minds, or in your mind, I suppose. You might have multiple, I don't know. (laughs) May we do as David and as the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately did and fulfilled. May we look to Christ who is the author and finisher of our faith. May we, like Jesus, look ahead to the joy that is set before us because here's the reality. Ultimately, our joy is not here in the temporary fleshly world it is in the world to come it is when we are delivered from this present body to be delivered into eternity with our lord so tonight may we like david though we may feel abandoned may we acknowledge god for who he is and as we do so may we remember his promises and may we see that his deliverance will still be sure and that whatever season we are in right now though we feel far from god he is that close He has not left you. He has not abandoned you. As a matter of fact, He abandoned His Son so that you would never be abandoned. So though you feel that way, do not let the enemy win and teach you or trick you into thinking that God has utterly forsaken you, but rather, may you see that in Christ you are not only unforsakable, but you are now forgiven forevermore. Let us pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We're grateful for the encouragement of it as well for the fulfillment that is found in the personal work of Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that tonight that we meditate upon your word, that we would look to Christ for hope and help in our time of struggles. And Lord, that you would strengthen each believer tonight. Prepare us for the week ahead and that we may glorify you in all things that we say and do. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. alright you All right, y'all.